Today's episode is Pure Sonic Gravy. My guest today is Sananda Matreya. Sananda Matreya was once known by a former name that I will not speak because I get the feeling that that's the way Mr. Matreya wants it. And I love and respect this man so much, it's easy for me to comply with his wishes. Earlier this year, I discovered his brand new album entitled Return to Zoathlon. And it's been in my heavy rotation of music that I've been using to pump me up before shows and fuel me up to keep motoring down the highway. For me as a music lover, there's no better feeling than when you fall in love with an artist's music to then discover that they have an entire body of work that you were unaware of. That is what happened with me after I fell in love with Return to Zoathlon. I discovered this period of recordings that Mr. Matreya calls post-millennium rock. And in this period, there are so many smash hit recordings. And as I got further into his music, I went deeper into exploring his website, sanandamatreya.com, or more simply, sananda.org. There, I discovered his archives of writings. His writings reminded me of my own comedy notebooks that I've been keeping for years, and they made me fall deeper in love with the man behind the music. Mr. Matreya lives in Milan, Italy, with his amazingly talented wife, who he loves greatly and inspires him, and they have they just had their second child. I keep referring to him as Mr. Matreya because many years ago, I was lucky enough to be the opening act for James Brown and Ray Charles. Backstage, everyone addressed them as either Mr. Brown or Mr. Charles. Even Ray Charles's son, Ray Charles Jr., called him Mr. Charles. I believe that is the same respect that Mr. Matreya commands. In this conversation, when Mr. Matreya refers to an artist that he respects and admires, I like that he calls them master. I was privileged to have this long conversation with him via Skype, and it's filled with wisdom, humor, philosophy, and supreme advice from the life of a legendary recording artist. For the first five minutes of our chat, I felt like a nervous fan. For the half hour past that, I felt like I had been friends with the man my entire life. And then beyond that, I felt like a disciple of a new religion that I wished he would start. There ain't nothing about this man that I don't like. And I'm proud to present to you here and now, the one and only divine presence of music and light that is Master Sananda Matreya. Thank you for making the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. Yeah, I want to thank you, first of all, for um, your recording, Return to Zoathlon, that you released this year. It's brought me a tremendous amount of joy. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I want to start with uh, my favorite song, Kangaroo. Uh, I'm a comedian, and I use songs to pump me up before shows, and uh, I've been using Kangaroo to pump me up lately. I love it because not only does it rock, it's happy. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, for, first, let me say that um, w- without wishing to sound patronizing, just as a fellow performer, I've always had the ultimate respect for, for comedians because it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's a tough gig anyway, you know, being a, being a, a professional fool. But certainly, <laughs> you know, the responsibility that comedians have 
to basically, in essence, not only to lighten people's, uh, people's load, but to also be a, capable of, of telling truth to power, you know, and, you know, pretty much be on your own at the same time. You know, it's, a, it's like it's a matador's existence. So you certainly, in your profession, have, have all my respect. Thank you. I, I, mean, I feel like a matador sometimes, and then sometimes, like, sometimes like a boxer. And my, my mother often reminds me that I'm a holy man because I help people forget their problems. Well, yeah, at the same time, you know, that, that's the left hand of the situation. And the other hand is certainly illustrating those, you know, simple hypocrisies that, that we all, you know, tend to uh, fall prey to that kind of keep things from maybe moving along the way that we, we say that we want to. So, you know, you also have the responsibility of being a therapist on, you know, on both hands, not only helping relieve people's tensions, but also, you know, use, using those tensions to, to illustrate, you know, why things are the way they are. Well, and I think the world is so screwed up, um, I'm going to be in business for a long time. Well, that's good news. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about so many things. I mean, you obviously, uh, in your writings, you, you, you're very funny. Uh, you, you've mentioned some comedians. But um, let's, let's stick with Kangaroo, first of all. Did your children influence this song at all? Um, the last two projects in particular, The Sphinx and Return to Zoathlon, I, I kind of see emotionally as... Uh, my first son's album and my second son's album because during the making of those projects were the time uh, that paralleled with their, um, you know, their being carried to to uh, to birth and their their being born. So um, it's inevitable. Also, because parallel to that time, inevitably I started watching a lot more uh, children's television. Ah, okay. Now that makes perfect sense. So, you know, one of the things that my um, sons have definitely helped is, you know, you can get advanced in your in your craft and you can continue to grow in certain ways, but it's almost as if coming back to um to children's television brought me back to like a master class in basic communication. Because, you know, you, you think about all the science that goes into reaching our children and, and all they put into just a set simple but very beautiful and complex form of communication, it really re-galvanizes your, um, your understanding of the power of simple communication and simple language, simple symbols that, that we all understand. So as a, as a person who is involved in uh, the music arts, the visual arts, the, uh, the written arts, Children's television is, is like going to university in, in how to communicate. So um, it's for sure that uh, there was um, a huge influence that they played on kangaroo, uh, or at least also being able to, to regalvanize the idea of just using simple images that, that travel well that everyone can understand. Uh, it seems like that's such an important, you know, development in a human's brain as a child are, are there certain things you won't expose your children to um sure uh things that first of all you automatically feel uncomfortable exposing them to that's certainly <clears throat> number one on the list 
And the other thing is they pretty much tell you. I mean, you can pretty much see in the way they respond to things, their pure reaction, whether they, are, they like something or not. You know, I mean, you don't really have to tell them, hey, don't watch it, it's too violent. If it's too violent for them, they'll just basically ask you to turn it and go to something else. Um, but it's also illustrated that same idea because they also sometimes will ask you to turn to things that you would think they weren't ready for yet, but they seem to be quite engaged by. Um, basically, what I've learned is that um, your children help to raise you as much as you help to raise them. And it's about surrendering to the, to the process of common sense and just listening to them. Wow. Uh, I, it tickles me silly every time you sing and kangaroo says and in the song you say i have a son who busts my balls what does your son bust your balls about um are you a father no and i'm trying to get my wife to have children with me (laughs) she's giggling in the background we're we're living this wonderful life i'm touring the world constantly and it wasn't a judgment it's just to say that if you were a father you wouldn't have of, especially if you were a father of young boys, you wouldn't ask that question because that question was self-explanatory. They bust your balls just by being like, you know, three-year-old boys involved in every aspect of the world that they can get their hands on. So it's just a matter of also certain things that you might, you might want to, you know, in, in, impress upon them that was impressed upon you. You know, there's sometimes, interestingly enough, a, a clear generational line where they kind of say, you know, to you in effect, hey, Papa, that was, that was your generation's issue. It's got nothing to do with me. So I don't, I'm not hearing you. And that's also instructive because you, you do know what to impress upon them, what's important, and, and what if they're not, you know, impressed enough to uh, take it themselves. You just leave it alone. So, you know, there's many ways in which you can, you know, love very much the fact that you've got a situation that's the best thing that ever happened to you, and you still pay for it because it busts your balls. And as, as you know, as a married man, you, love, love isn't cheap. We pay for love. We pay the price of love, and the pay, price of love is usually just getting your, your, your balls busted to pay for it. It's value.
it, one thing I've realized as I, I gotten older is that the true revolution is having a family and teaching your own doctrine to your children. I can't wait to have kids and program their brains with James Brown and Muhammad Ali and Bob Marley and, you know, everything. Voltaire, Bukowski, everything I find cool. Exactly. And then the step beyond that is when at least half of it they throw completely back in your face and, and, and make you feel insecure that you wouldn't <laughs> suggest that to them. No matter how cool you are. Exactly. You because no matter how cool you are, that's you to you. To them, you're some guy pushing these things on them that they're not so certain about, and why should they have their mind made up about them now anyway? So what, what the, the, the turning point comes when the balance is with you passing on what you can get away with passing on to them, with also them growing us up to realize that half, in fact, most of that shit's not important. But of course, by the time you get there, you will have had enough time to see that for yourself. Wow, I can't wait to experience it. Uh, in your writings, and you know, you got, you know, I'm old enough to, when I was a kid, there was vinyl records as a teenager, there was cassettes in my 20s, it was CDs. It tracks. Liner notes were my favorite things. When an artist put some thought into liner notes and then to discover your website and all these writings you have on there is just, it's incredible. And, and one of the things you say in there in your writings is that children in Italy are treated like little emperors. Um, not only little emperors, but little Chinese emperors. It's a different level. First, let me, let me just backtrack and say this. I, I write the way I write because I was a music nerd like you growing up. I basically read and devoured everything. And I was always grateful for as much literature connected to a project as I could. Because for me, for guys like us, we, we had the advantage of it being both an emotional and an intellectual experience. So, you know, it was, a more, it was more visceral for us. So you know, the types that we are, you know, the types that look at the world the way we do and, and have to, you know, this is the way we, we, we look at stuff, we look at things. So for me, I was always delighted when there were our, our artists that I loved and the liner notes reflected the respect um, that you had for them, that they would consider important enough to even have liner notes. You know, so that always stuck with me. I was always the kid who, who could meet the engineer, the second engineer, on a Stevie Wonder record at a banquet, and they're like overjoyed that you would even know who they were. And it's like, well, of course I know who you were. You know, you, you were on the record. So for me, that was a motivating factor of, it has been, and continues to be, that I know that there are still, in every generation, in every era, guys like us, people like us, who like to devour whatever other information there is about a thing that they are um, digesting you know, emotionally. Now, regarding um, the children issue, one of the reasons that it has been a great opportunity being a father here is because it is kind of like a built-in backup system that because of the esteem and the time that Italians make for children and the lives and the imagination of children, um, you do feel like basically they inherit all these all these grandmothers and, and uncles and, and cousins, uh, as well as the way they tend to 
regard themselves as community. Coming from um, the atmosphere, the time that I came from, being mixed race in a time that wasn't necessarily as comfortable with it as, as, as it is becoming, um, uh, for me, them having an identity that they were very, very sure of and that wasn't questioned was very important for me. Um, so uh, it's, it's great to, to have children in an environment where children are not just treated as a kind of nuisance that has to be dealt with while you're getting on with other things, but um, are regarded in their own right as something really cool. I appreciate your, uh, your your honesty, and and I appreciate you exposing your writings. I mean, I've been keeping notebooks since I was twenty years old. I've got just uh, I don't know fifty, sixty notebooks, and, I, and reading your writings, it felt like I was reading your notebooks. And there's v- some very funny stuff in there. One thing you said uh, about your son is that he realizes that the the titty window is only open for so long as a child or something. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, the, that's such a brilliant insight. Absolutely. But, but the good news is he's now in his ass period. He's, he's moved on. <laughs> he, he's, he's now in his ass period. So he's, he's, he's now in that space where he can touch, you know, butts and, uh, you know, women give him that look of, of surprised... Um, kind of encouragement, kind of like, well, don't do that again, but kind of thanks for having done that, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, you know, so he's, he's still feeling out the parameters of the situation. I mean, it's a, it's a different world being a boy now because, you know, mores have shifted and changed so much since we were, we were kids that, you know, um, you know one, one regard, when growing up in Italy, they're growing up in a very conservative society, but they're also growing up in a, a society that's also had a, its own sense of dramatic flair, if you know what I mean, um, and has always been comfortable with that side of its gender uh, expression as well. So, you know, the, the point is the signals that come at, come at boys today are so guarded and political that, you know, you kind of hope as a father, you know, you talk about passing on your values to him. Well, you know, as a heterosexual, I'm, I'm kind of definitely so far encouraged by the fact that they, they seem heavily lean towards that way, but but you never know, man, because the signals that come at them now are just different. So, you know, whereas I was raised in an environment where I would have been greatly discouraged from touching women's bosoms, um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be in, you know, that he's inherited an environment where, you know, it's, it's understood that, hey, why wouldn't he want to do that at this particular point when he can get away with it? It's a pity it ever has to end. Well, it doesn't have to end permanently. The point is, it's just a bridge of time where it has to end until you get to that other side where it can begin again. But usually it helps to have a job, you know, and a, at least a nice car. Yeah, and you got to take care of your teeth. and you uh, do all of those things to keep up. What is the best laugh you've had lately? Um, the best laugh I've had lately? That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to relate it to whether it's a thought or a film or something. Um, you know, the thing about anyway humor is, is, is that, you know, having lived in Hollywood for 11 years, you know that pretty much most of the people there, but for the one break or another, could have gone in like five different directions anyway. I mean, 
There's so many people that could have been singers, but the break was first as an actor, or they could have been comedians, but the first break was, you know, as, as a singer. It's, you know, there's a, there's a core of people that basically, you know, constitute the, the, the gypsy uh, community that performers are, you know. And um, it's, it's just sort of like in, in, in important, you know, to, to, to bear in mind that at the end of the day, when you lose your train of thought, all you have to do is be patient and wait for the next train to come along. I don't see you living in Los Angeles. Uh, You're the kind of person that, I don't know, maybe you loved it. Maybe it was inspiring. I've lived there twice. Uh, It doesn't seem to suit my personality. I agree. That's basically what I had to come to understand. But in the meantime, I can at least look back and realize that there was a lot of stuff that was um, as as excruciating as it was for me there. um, It at least woke me up. It woke me up to another level of life and another possibility. But also, you know, it doesn't hurt for people who do what we do to spend time at the very nexus of our art forms. And, and since it is one of the two main communication you know, centers of the world uh, with so many different disciplines going on within it, you know, be it music, writing, acting, directing, editing, whatever it is, you know, um, it certainly doesn't hurt to spend some time there getting your craft together, you know, not only for the contacts, but just basically for the confidence that, you know, you can, you can learn there. So if, if nothing else, Los Angeles and that community serves as a great uh, university of higher education for the communicative arts. Yeah, I've got a, there's so many talented people. And the weed, and the weed access is wonderful. The weed access. They'll deliver it. Absolutely, uh, my friend. L.A. Speed Weed. Exactly. They'll bring it right to your door. <laughs> um, so there's it, compensations. I mean, you're right. It wasn't certainly... Um, you are a, a guy I would like to get high with one day. Well, the, easier said than done, but easier done than said as well. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure we're bumping to each other because, uh, you know, you guys, you comedians need all the support system you can get. That's true. Uh, I played in Milan once 10 years ago at a very small jazz club, and I sold nine tickets. So I don't think I'll be back there anytime soon. Well, that's only like three, three people less than Jesus wind up having like, you know, <laughs> 12 guys. You know, you know we, we assumed that he was happy with his 12. You know, we don't know that he was like really pissed because he was hoping for at least 18. And half of them were probably his cousins, and we're not supposed to know that. <laughs> oh, that's a stitch. So, you know, uh, nine people are nine motherfuckers, you know what I mean? Listen. That's, that's, I, should, I should keep my chin up. One of my favorite all-time groups, the police, there's a legend of them that the first time they played Cleveland, three people showed up. But one of the three people was uh, a DJ who really loved the band and just decided he had seen enough to commit himself to Spreading the gospel of, uh, of, of the police. Wow. So, That's amazing. You know, for me, and this is something that you have to remember because this is something that all performers, all assholes who have to get up on a stage and convince people that it was worth them dragging themselves out of whatever situation to come there, have to certainly have enough, you know, confidence to, to, to understand that, you know, what, what you're doing, what you're doing is like hugely valuable, whether the place is packed 
or whether it's just that one asshole in the back nursing a drink that really needs those laughs. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a comedian, you have that nightly where, like, the first show could be sold out, everybody loves you, and then the late show could be 18 people, and you're like, well, I was a genius an hour ago. What happened? Yeah. Well, you know, timing is everything. It's like this. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, Ornella or Nothing is one of the finest love songs you have ever written. Uh, I think so. Who is Ornella, and what was the inspiration behind the song? Well, okay, first of all, I'm happy that you're smart enough to ex- understand two things. A person can inspire a song, but just because a person inspires a song, of course, then when you get into writing the song itself, the song starts to write itself. So often there is a bit of a, um, a distance between, uh, or, d- or d- even a disconnect between who inspired the song to be written and then ultimately what the song became about. Okay? Um, Ornella is, uh, in this case, such a song because when I was in the army, uh, stationed in Germany as, as a young a soldier, uh, in Hanau, Germany, I used to go uh, the weekends after we get paid, you know, go to like uh, get laid, go, go to get like some uh, cinema love. So basically you go catch a film, you wait for your you know, other soldiers to do, get through doing what they were going to do, and then you'd meet up at a pub later, get drunk, and then go back to uh, get on the train and go back, you know, to, to the barracks. So I can remember wandering into a cinema that had a, a poster of what looked like a very funny film, and I wanted to see something funny. And it's, uh, it was a film by Adriano Celentano, who, who was not only a superstar in his own country here, Italy, but is also an icon throughout Europe. And um, he's particularly big in Germany. And so I became a huge fan of his films. As it happened, the first two films of his that I saw, uh, Ornella Muti was his co-star. And um, she's also become quite a legendary figure herself, um, quite a, a, a cinema uh, classic. And so basically, Ornella or Nothing came about for me being like a reminiscing about my days as a young soldier in Germany when everything was in front of me and you know it's so it certainly harkens back to a time that was really hopeful and wistful and 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 just full of belief that somehow my life was going to turn out you know close to my dreams I can just remember how magical the time it was and how great it was to be a young soldier and being able to get on a train and go to the other towns and you know spend a little money and you know, it, it was a great magical time. So it really symbolizes that being at the very beginning of your, of your youth and looking ahead of you and, 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 and seeing something or believing that there's something positive in front of it. Um, other than that, it's just the fact that one day the phrase or Nella or nothing came to me and I realized then that I had the song that I was looking for. That's why I'm all about all that little, all that thing That's why I'm all about all that little, all that thing 
Did you learn anything useful while you were in the Army? I learned a lot of useful things. Um, I learned a lot of what I wasn't, and I learned a lot of what I was and learned to appreciate being. Um, and, you know, the two things that have helped me survive as an artist, um, besides the, the, the gift that, that God has uh, allowed me to, to utilize, is the fact that I was a boxer and I got values from being a boxer for the brief time that I was and that I was a soldier, and the values I learned as a soldier. Um, one of those things would certainly be a, a respect for organization, a respect for discipline, and discipline applied towards you know, uh, intelligent means. Um, commitment, you know, just basically once you throw yourself into a thing, you don't come out of that thing until you finish that thing. So, you know, and just the fact that I'm, I was the kind of person that grew up not really comfortable in clubs and I was never in groups and clubs and things like that. That was always a very different world for me and I was never invited into it. Um, I don't regret it because, you know, sometimes the loneliness of our lives, of the lifestyles that we're called to live as performers means that sometimes it's good to be comfortable being alone. But for the most part, 
the army was the first sense of group belonging and brotherhood that I ever experienced. And of course, as I get older, um, I can appreciate even more what that meant to me then and the values that still remain with me now. Well, I'm glad you brought up boxing because that's another thing I love about you is uh, your boxing history. You won a gold gloves title? Yeah, I won a gold gloves title in Florida, I believe, 1980. That was a completely you, different was, life. How was, the, how was the title fight? Was it a pushover? Was it a, a Yeah, it was a, it was a pushover because, in fact, um, the truth is, is that I won the title fight by default because the guy, for whatever mysterious reason, I'll never know, that night, the guy never showed up. And I was the only fight that night. The guy just didn't show up. So basically, you know, I'm, I'm certainly proud that I put myself in a position to be in the title fight. And I, I certainly will always assume that I would have whooped this guy anyway. But I'll never know. You know, he certainly was a good, uh, a good fighter. But for, some, for whatever reason, he didn't turn up. But I, I won it. it. It was in Miami, 1980, Coconut Grove. I remember that. I remember the wow. arena. What was, what was your record? I think it was something like 18 and 2. Wow. I, it was something like that. I can't remember. I just remember the, the moment when I realized that this, what, this wasn't what I was called to do with my life. I certainly appreciated what I got from it because one of the things I got from it was this almost instant Joe Wider, um, Charles Atlas respect you know, that went throughout the school when I started boxing. So I'll always appreciate it that it gave me a different status. And it certainly showed me a lot of my character and what, what I was capable of. But I can remember my last fight where I was um, jabbing this guy pretty easily in his face. And his mother was in the audience and she was cheering him on really passionately like a mother. You know, and I just remember every time I hit him in the face and, you know, it would, you know, she would cheer for him and I was just moved by it and I realized that I wasn't you know put on earth to basically be hitting mother's boys in the face wow and um but I, I appreciated where it took me where it led me and what I I still get from it now um because like you um you know Master Muhammad Ali was not not just a hero he he was literally a god he's literally a god to me a prophet I mean, what he said at, at the time when America needed to hear it. And I'm not a big fan of that Parkinson's um, excuse. I think sometimes when you're a powerful figure like him, you get a bit of a dose of something. And next thing you know, you know, the CIA is happy and you can now be wheeled around unthreatening like an icon, you know. Um, but at the same time, the fact that he's still willing to serve through that is only further proof to me that He's a God, and this is the sacrifice that he's willing to make because he actually does love us assholes. Yeah, I love it. He was really tight with Sam Cooke. Yeah, he was very close with Master Sam. Um, what do you think was the most important contribution uh, Muhammad Ali made to humanity? Um, well, as basically, look, you have certain people who, who have their professions, but ultimately what they are, warriors... And, you know, his profession certainly mirrored and echoed that perfectly. But it's the same as whether he was, um, you know, Martin Luther King or whether he was Mother Teresa. You know, the point is that he just has this warrior's heart for humanity 
and and he's willing to apply himself to it. And you know, one gets the feeling that the medium was his his boxing prowess, but whatever he would have uh, found to illustrate himself, he would have used that illustration to help make the lives of other people better. It just it just seems to be intrinsically who he is. I've read through the years like every interview I could get my hands on with Muhammad Ali. There was one interview or maybe it was an Esquire article or something. It's a quote by him where it was like the first time he had gotten knocked down. And he said he thought to himself, I'm the king and the king doesn't belong on the floor. <laughs> and he got up. Yeah. Well, well, that actually also then illustrates the uh, maybe even more clearly what it is that he brought to humanity. That, that sense of dignity. Because that sense of dignity translates. Because at some point we're going to find ourselves knocked on our ass. And that's the same question we're going to have to ask ourselves is whether we actually believe we belong there or not. And That's the truth. So, you know, through those illustrative actions, whether he was a football player or a painter or, or, or a, a prize fighter, he illustrates those simple truths that reach all of us because it just illustrates the fact that if it's in order to, to, to live the lives that we deserve, we're going to have to be willing to fight for it. At time, for, at, at, there are times when we just have to be willing to fight and have to be willing to beat bitches back. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, a lot of young comedians ask me for advice as a comedian, and one thing I tell a lot of them is you have to be your own best corner man. The way Muhammad Ali had Bundini Brown... You got to yeah. be. You got to be your own Bundini Brown, saying, "Can you get up? Keep jabbing, champ. You know, keep keep sticking, keep moving, keep throwing." Yeah. Because there's so much in show business that'll you know beat you down, and people try and keep you, you know, on the floor. But I've I've, I've also always found because I also came in a culture which kind of encouraged this, that there also has to be with that. A kind of arrogance that suggests that, you know, whether you motherfuckers are here or not, it's not really about you, it's about me. And that's the tricky thing because, you know, it, but there is a sadomasochistic relationship, let's stop kidding ourselves. You know, any performer by definition who seeks a rapport, a relationship with a bunch of strangers, a bunch of audience, is by definition a sadomasochistic asshole. Okay, so it's just the nature of you understanding that, okay, if you're in front of this tiger, this lion, it's not really the whip that they're afraid of. So don't delude yourself that it's the whip. The illusion is that it's the whip that keeps them from gnarling your ass to death. It's, it's the other side of it. It's the idea that you actually believe that you standing with the whip makes any difference at all. That's the thing. So... You know, there has to be just enough self-destructiveness allowed into the process to even sometimes risk to push those bitches away a little bit. To play with it the way a cat would play with a ball and then come back and pull them back. Because they, for some reason, it's like this. They not only respect that, but they say they're masochists as well. That's why they're there. Wow. Um... And I, I, I know it well. Um, and I, I think like a boxer in, in, as a performer, if you don't, for me personally, if I don't keep getting on stage, you know, your muscles get flabby and you 
um, you lose something in your step. Um, how often do you perform live? Uh, I mean, it seems like you perform live daily on your own. And it, the thing that amazes me is on your recordings, you play every instrument. Yeah, well, the thing is, I'm in a different political situation from, from you, which is just every, every man's path is how he finds it. Um, so I can't play as often as I'd like, but between playing, between rehearsing, between being in the studio making music, I play often enough, and between just playing around the house and, and keeping my um, writing going or whatever, and my vocabulary um, familiar with me, to me, um, I play enough that I, I get the time that I need on the instruments to grow, but I also have to spend just enough time away from it that when I do come back to it, I'm also able to see some perspective growth as well. Sometimes the best thing for any of us, whatever we do, you're right, is a time to train and stay in shape. And sometimes there's a reason for the down season because also the mind needs to relax and the mind needs to let it go. And so, you know, you come back and you're looking at it and all of a sudden you see it different. And that's exactly the growth in and of itself that sometimes we need is just to be able to see the thing different. Not necessarily whether we moved the chains in this particular instance or each particular instance, but whether you can see that what you have done is the best thing you needed to, to have done and could have done. So sometimes it's just perspective needs to change on the situation because, look, we're in the game and the game goes on. So knowing that, accepting that, means that just because you take yourself out of the game doesn't mean that the game is going to stop. The game is going to wait for you when you plug back in. So knowing that, you know when it's important to take yourself out, unplug yourself, and just become some other asshole. <laughs> just become some other asshole. I mean, that's I, sometimes all you can do. I love it. Um, but like on, on the song With a Girl Like You... Yeah. There's this wicked country fiddle. Yeah, that's that's you playing. No, that no, no. I didn't. I didn't play that. He, that gentleman is an Italian gentleman who was a a, a great player um, named Lucio Fabri, and he's uh, now a famous conductor and uh, producer. He's also a multi instrumentalist. He plays all that country stuff as well as other stuff. And uh, no, I'm I'm basically warming up to get ready to play fiddle like that. But I think I'm going to start on an app. Uh, is that the guy that's playing on that uh, With a Girl Like You Live, what's on some Italian television show, and there's like a 120-piece orchestra behind you? That's an amazing clip. Yeah, that was um, that's, that's him. He was conducting... Uh, was he conducting the orchestra? No, he wasn't conducting that particular orchestra. He Variously, that's what he does. He actually conducts orchestras usually of that size for TV extravaganzas because, you know, he's very well respected and he's, he's just very gifted. Midnight, a girl like you. 
you've got so many great clips on your website and YouTube. The 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 Japan concerts you just did and. Um, it, it's wonderful. The song you did, the ballad of LeBron and Kobe. Yeah. I was wondering, do you think you'll ever make a song for Mario Balotelli? Well, the the the, the hurdle in that is that he basically plays for Milan, and I'm a Juventino. So I'm yeah, for what? I'm for Juventus. Oh, okay. I mean, it don't hold me responsible because I'm married into a Juventus family. <laughs> What about when he plays for the national team? Doesn't that um, make well, people put there? Yeah, but he's got to do some shit. I mean, what does he? It be, we all do respect. He's very, very gifted. But what has he done? What does he want? I don't. When that last World Cup, when he scored and he ripped his shirt off, I thought that was the most big dick rock and roll thing I've ever seen in sports. LeBron and Kobe have won things, my brother. You understand what I'm saying to you? It's yes. Like, yes. True. True. So you want to be on somebody's list, it's like this. I'm just being honest what the criteria is, is when you, when you win something, when you hoist the cup, you know, something we can think about it. He, he's never hoisted the cup, ever? I'm not sure, but he's not my problem because I'm a Juventino and, 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 and he doesn't play for my team. Okay. See, the thing is, Kobe plays for my team, the Lakers. I'm a lifelong Lakers fan. And um, LeBron just happened to be like uh, a nice name to rhyme to. You know, it's, a, it's a hell of a name. It's a hell of a cool name, and it just it worked. You know, it's been it's been marketed well since then. Actually, I mean, since that 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 song, it's it's almost like they're inseparable now. Even you know, in, in promotions for the league, but that was just you know, being in tune with the zeitgeist because you know that's just the way it was. They had two alliterative names that went well together. Um, just for the for the immediate future, I can't honestly see myself writing a song about Mario Balotelli. Okay, I thought it was a really clever question, and you, sh- clever you question. shot that clay pigeon out of the sky. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, the concept vision of Zoathlon seems mm-hmm. to have been germinating for a long time in your writings. Uh, how long was that vision coming together before you actually recorded I'm glad you noticed that because one of, one of the advantages that I think the writings and, all, and the internet basically has given us artists is a chance to build a more fourth dimensional interactive world with the people who respond to your work and what you do. In other words, things don't have to just spring out of the air, but if they're following the discourse as, as it goes, like you notice, you can see things building to a point. And for me, I don't know why, I, I, I like that. Because, you know, we have to remember that it's not just the technology being made available that allows, you know, these leaps in communication, but just what the technology allows us simultaneously to do as far as the relationships we nurture with people who appreciate the way we think or the way we do things or say things. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, for me, having access to a process where... And you, you also said previously the diary. In fact, the website writing started as an extension of me finally deciding that it was stupid for me to keep writing in a diary and then translating some of this stuff later. Because uh, like you, I had like, you know, um, like 35, 36 books of diaries until finally the 37th book started to become uh, the writings on the net. So... It did start from, from my diaries, 
And I, I have kind of kept them like that, but also as a kind of slash line of notes, slash, just for them to communicate, you know, uh, humor. And I use humor a lot because humor, other than music, I mean, it's just a direct form of, of, of communicating with people on a level that, you know, they appreciate being communicated with. You know, and so I'm glad you noticed that development because the zoathlon ultimately is a concept that from all of this, from these lives that we live, the life that we see in front of us, the life that we come to understand also exists behind what we see, you know, what we see and what we're not supposed to see. Um, you know, all of that, the symbolism, the, the, the taking the understanding of the zodiac and understanding that whatever your views of astrology or whatever, still the zodiac is a emotional, universal emotional language that expresses certain concepts about the psycho intrinsic psychological nature of man and his journey through the wheel of space-time and, you know, and how we interact with different forces to influence everything that we, we go through. Um, so, you know, the, the zoathlon is something that became a little bigger than, okay, this project. And, you know, if I'm lucky, it's something that, you know, I could eventually, you know, turn into another property down the line because parallel to all of this as well has been the understanding that, you know, in this new age, you know, um, the digital age, uh, publishing, ma publishing material has to be seen differently now. So basically, it's not just the songs that are a part of the, the, the new age of publishing, but your ideas, your concepts, you know, the, your, your paintings, your whatever it is that you can galvanize or collect, collectivize into one place and basically present under your banner, you know, that becomes, that becomes publishing material. And so for me, it's also exciting as a creative person, the opportunity to perhaps create something that, let's say in 10 or 20 years, you know, we roll out the Zoathlon Follies on, on, uh, in the theater or, or something that basically means I can collect all the different threads that have made up this concept and just, you know, present them uh, overall in a new form and take it to the next level. Well, the, the, the creative vision of, of Zoathlon, I mean, I dug deep into your writings and, I mean, that's how I noticed that. But, I mean, it, it, it seems like it did... I mean, there's there's philosophical, there's humorous. It's like uh, this alternative universe of things that the way things should be. Um, but you know, it's all you say alternative universe. It's interesting because right now, I mean, again, not trying to get like wishy washy or fairy tale into like this, you know, the zodiacal situation. But the bottom line is that we did pass from one age, the age of Pisces, which for two thousand years set the template for our our imagination and how we see ourselves. Now we are in, actually in the world. Whether some calendars say we were on the cusp of it or we have actually crossed the line, it doesn't matter. We're now under the influence of a parallel reality that is coming to become our new reality um, by the time our children become men and women to inherit the world. It will be the reality that they, that they are, are living with. So when you have a template that communications and art forms and everything business has been, you know, uh, based on the Piscean age and the way it was it's groomed our thinking and the way we behave. You know, that's one set of symbols and that's one reality that we face. But now, as you said, there's a parallel world that is now becoming, is moving into place to become the new reality, which of course has to have a different set of priorities, which of course has to have a different filter way of thinking 
and is going to influence us likewise. So, you know, zoathlon is also the recognition that we are kind of right now in these parallel worlds hovering in between. But that's also what's exciting about it because, you know, it, however you phrase miracles or the ability to make magic and turn things into reality, in many respects now has never been a greater time because it's almost like your, 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 your left hand is closer to one reality and your left and your right hand is closer to another reality and now you can reach both of them at the same time and pull them together. Or pull one thing from, you know, pull one reality into another from either direction. And, you know, there's even, even the films about space and space travel, you know, the overlap of folds of dimensions, this and that, suggest the same thing. So I think we're, I think we're all on a similar wavelength in suggesting that we're all excited as well as apprehensive as we would be about being kind of, you know, neither fish nor flesh right now neither in one place or another but certainly on the way from one place to another well you say so many wonderful things uh, in in regard to zoathlon and your writings M- one of my favorite things is you said when is, when citizens do something that might be offensive to someone they have to place themselves in the custody of the offended person and act it as an indentured servant until both agree that the debt has been paid um, you know, it's interesting because the truth is, after I write and publish, I don't, I never go back and read them again. No, it's, it's true. So every time, it, when it does happen that a quote is, is given back to me, it's always like listening to it from a completely different person and perspective. But also, like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, that happens a lot as well. But, you know, it's interesting enough because all of these things are coming from and through your imagination, these things. And you also do believe, you have to delude yourself just enough to believe that you are somehow listening to the laws of another space. I mean, look, the truth is, we're surrounded by radio towers. And radio, being surrounded by radio waves alone suggests that we're susceptible to other dimensional electromagnetic manipulation and communication. So, you know, the radio waves are not so, so clean that when they come to you, they only deliver you the song on the radio. There's a lot of other dimensional material coming through that vibration affecting our waveform and our, our body and our electromagnetic self as well. So, it is just to say that, you know, it, it, it's understood that being surrounded by all of this, being surrounded by the potential at any given moment to communicate with other dimensions... And the wave, the wave radio forms are there to convert energy from one dimension to another. These things are very possible. And it's just as clear that, you know, there's a lot of people sensitive. And, and most performers and entertainers are by nature sensitives anyway. So there's a, a, a natural psychic quality to, to many of my performer friends anyway. And I assume the same with you, with yourself. Um, you know... There is that something in the air. There is that movement towards something that, 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 that was in a logic that might have made sense at the time, but just doesn't make as much sense as we go forward. Because I'm sure that both you and I agree that contracts and concepts of contracts of our employee that might have made sense to us when we were young men don't make any bloody sense to us now at all. Wow, that's the truth. There was another thing you wrote that killed me. 
uh, I can't re- I remember it exactly, but it was don't be surprised that you sold yourself out or you should be surprised at how cheaply you sold yourself for. It was something like that. I was like, holy yeah. shit, that's yeah. tight. Um, but listen, just taking one step back, the concept of indentured servitude, I believe, might have had something to do with the concept, an ancient, the ancient concept that I think the Hindus might have had some connection with was that basically if you took the life or the child of another person, then you know you're, you either adopted someone or if you want to make amends, then you had to take someone else's life forward and bring it forward. It was just a very simple thing. But the, also the idea of Zuathlon is that if you also read it, it's not necessarily easy for people in Zuathlon to offend one another because their consciousness is not necessarily as possessive and competitive as the consciousness we're encouraged to have. But the idea being that if there were something that happened which had to be rectified, that the neighbors would take care of it themselves. Wow. Well, it's, it's, um, it's too bad everyone's so disconnected and um, communities don't take care of each other like that anymore. Well, we're not encouraged to, and that's not where the money is. So, you know, the money's not even in communities. It's like the money's in, like, even when you're making money in a community, it goes out to another community and is invested in a third community. You know, it's, it's just the way the system basically allows for the negligence of community and how it uses community, of course, to scare people and to galvanize them towards any particular movement or shepherding exercise they might want to take them through but how the notion of community is then discarded when people actually, you know, need something. I think we've become stingy to the point where we've forgotten that whatever we say of ourselves, we do claim ourselves to be a Christian nation. And that I do believe that if you regard yourself as a Christian, even marginally, there are certain values that, that apply. And one is redistribution of wealth. I don't mean redistribution of wealth in a way that might sound leftist or whatever, because I don't believe in giving anything necessarily to people unless in a state of crisis or emergency. I don't think it does the spirit any good and, in fact, corrupts it. But a Christian society has a, has, has, has a, um, a responsibility to redistribute its wealth in the form of creating jobs, creating opportunities, creating employment, creating a community nexus and a network for a community to thrive and to be able to, to, to you know, give to its families and to its and maintain within its communities those things which it says it needs. Um, and, and we don't do that. We look for every excuse to take jobs away and give them to the cheapest bastards we can find anywhere in the world where we just bomb them into submission. And then we use patriotism and, and wave a flag when it's important to, to herd people, but otherwise ignore that these people can use work, 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 work. And um, I'm just a Christian marginal enough to know that it is said that the, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And so basically, if you fail to provide work, you, you are automatically creating so many pathologies that are going to affect a community and its families. So for me, redistribution of wealth is important. And redistribution of wealth means giving men and women an opportunity to work. Who is your favorite figure in the Bible? I don't know, and in some in some regards, I lean towards David because of how, how fucking spoiled he was. Um, in some respects, Moses, I guess, because uh, I don't know, because he was Moses. Um, 
Uh, I don't know, St. John, John the Revelator and St. John the Baptist, maybe. I'm pro-Jesus, and I've had people uh, smack my shit down over that many times. Um, I think Paul is really interesting. Because uh, they're, they're being blinded on the road to Damascus and then becoming the biggest, uh, best preacher? Well, the thing is that, you know, my thing is that if you can say you're a Jesus guy or not, but it's just the degree to which in being so, in proclaiming yourself to be a Jesus, a pro-Jesus guy, that it means that you automatically accept all other aspects attached to the life and the, and the, the stories of Jesus. You know, so what I'm saying to you is like, with anything else, as you get, as you get older, you begin to edit some of the experiences and stories that just don't add up to you as per what you have experienced. Because it's easy to preach, but um, what I've found is that at least half of that shit you realize when you get older, if you're honest, that you don't know what the hell you're talking about, really. But you might sound really good saying it, and you might be very convincing and acting it out. But at the end of the day, the greatest teacher is life and just being paid attention to. She teaches everything that we need to really know. Uh, a lot of the rest is us being seduced into other forms of hypnosis. For example, like if you're not drawn to higher education, then it's just another form of hypnosis that you're going to have to pay for. And that's the evil genius of the situation is making you pay for your own containment. You dig? So it's like, but if you are drawn to it, it's a different world and it's your world. You know, so it's just a matter of understanding that there's a lot of things that we're encouraged to, to believe because people are trying to get numbers and the strength in numbers and it just to lead to all these to money, which is fine because there are groups that are important, there are pe movements of people that are important and there are people that belong to those kind of ways of life. But guys like you and ourselves, my, myself, by, by, by our nature, are, are kind of you know, m m most comfortable sticking it alone and figuring out for ourselves what's the best thing for us to do, to proceed forward, and not what the crowd is doing, not what we should really be doing according to mores, but what just makes sense to do. We, we, we both know that when you, when you swim in Jesus' waters, it's not always smooth sailing, because it's just, that's the nature of what he inspires, and he inspires so much different passion in so many different ways and so many different people. I agree, and I, I I hate dogmatic people. I hate people who think they have you know the 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 everything in the Bible justifies all their terrible judgment and shitty actions against other people. Yeah, I'm confu yeah. I'm confused, but I, I'm pro Jesus. <laughs> anyway, no, I mean the point, but that and then, and I guess that is the ultimate point because the, the the Christians do preach having a personal relationship with the Lord, and therefore. You know, the only thing to remind them of, it, then if it is a personal relationship, then you have to get out of it and butt out of it. And I, I'm honest enough to admit that I don't like anyone getting in the middle of my relationship between anything and what I love. Okay? I, I can say the same if you try to get in between me and my relationship with my wife, if you try to get between me and my relationship with my music, if you try to get between me and my relationship with my smoke or with Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be very happy because these are my relationships. And true sources of joy. And, you know, not just that, but the comfort and just the knowing that, you know, there are entities, there, there, there is something that understands how, how crazy you are, how crazy you've had to be. 
And I just, at the end of the day, it's all right. Just keep moving forward and everything will look out for itself. Okay, uh, I just have a few more questions for you. Um, my favorite thing about Milan is that when the composer Verde was dying, the city put down straw on the street in front of his house so that the wagon wheels would not disturb the master. Can you tantalize the listeners with any other factoids or knowledge nuggets about the city of Milan or Italy in general? Um, yes, that's always been a story that's greatly uh, enthused me about my choice of, of having come here because, you know, look, if you are a, a comedian, you know, and there are certain places that have a certain resonance, a certain history uh, with your identification with it, clearly you're going to feel in those places, you know, that there, there's a, an energy, a positive, friendly energy, an encouragement towards your art form. And so nothing symbolizes the way Milan's relationship is to music than that particular story. Um, in fact, just recently, we were very close to that very street because we were invited to see uh, this, this great young master tenor, opera tenor, um, uh, Vittorio Grigolo. Um, and so we were in that area, and in that area so rife with history that it's, it's difficult not to feel all those, all those very good ghosts when you're around, when you're in that area. And it, it certainly was a decisive, uh, a, a factor that helped me understand how fortunate I was to be an artist tapped into the energy of a city that had such an illustrious history and such regard for it. And I can tell you that it does make a difference. Uh, who are the other musical masters that have come from Milan? Um, I'm not so sure the musical masters come from Milan as much as that. Basically, everybody had to come to Milan um, as far as uh, whether they were conductors, composers, because of La Scala, because of also just the, the industry was always here. So the money to finance orchestras and the different you know, philharmonics and these kind of things were also here. So, you know, whether it's the time that Maestro uh, Pavarotti had to spend here getting his situation together and, and putting in his time at La Scala and the different other academies that exist here, it's just a very, very musical city. You know, I, I, I'm very fortunate in so much as uh, I also live not very far from uh, one of the prominent music academies here. So sometimes I can just take a walk down the street and you can wander through the, the campus and hear... You know, hear um, people practicing the violin or people practicing the, the clarinet or, or a Chopin etude or something. So um, it's, it's just a really cool and supportive city. I think Master Ricardo Muti, the great director, I think he's from here. But I'm not sure so many... Okay, I think my wife says he's from the South. But the point is everybody at some point does come here and, and spend their time here. Also, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, most people, when they think of him outside of Italy, they don't realize that a great part of his Italian legend rests on the fact that uh, at least half of his service was in service to the, the dukes in the city of Milan. Um, he designed the canal. Um, he did quite a few things to basically put his imprint um, on the city. So it's also what's cool about Milan is its connection to one of the great... Uh, Renaissance and one of the great thinkers of all of, of, of Western science. Wow. Um, do you remember, how could you forget? Um, I don't know what it was, three, five years ago, 
and I'm asking you this as a citizen of Milan, um, that person with a mental disorder took that little model of the Cathedral of Milan and smashed it in Berlusconi's face? Yeah. yeah. Do do you know, did that help or hurt the sales of those little cathedral models? (laughs) That's pretty funny. (laughs) Corcativo. Corcativo. You know, I can't really answer that question. I, credit to the question. I was all, trying to make it. No, all I can say, though, is that just as a man, I just think that there's a basic man code that no matter how crazy you are, one, a man does not shoot another man in the face, period. Period, yeah, period. period. Second, a man does not throw another thing at a man's face. Like, come on, I mean, okay, if... If you catch a man and bear with your wife and you throw a shoe at his head, okay, it's understood. But, you know, we just don't kind of behave like that. There's got to be a code, even if you're crazy, a code of, chival- of, of, of chivalric honor or something. And so I can remember seeing that, like you said, who can forget it, and, and thinking just how ugly that was and how just, no, that's not, you, you punch a man. You reach to punch him. You don't throw a souvenir in his face. And if you're going to throw a souvenir in his face, it should be one of those snowmen that you shake and the like snow comes up. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty twisted joke, you know. Yeah, but it was, it was no less appreciated. <laughs> These are pretty twisted times, dude. These are. Um, what is the greatest advice you've ever been given as a musician? Um, to fuck them all. That basically Miles and Miles Davis has grasped me for it. Hey, fuck them all. Okay, that there was some context to that, but at the end of the day, the greatest. Did he tell you that? Did he tell you that in person? Yeah, the greatest advice I've ever been given is basically that, wow. like, like, in the same advice you would give someone in your profession. It's basically once you cross this line, once you cross this line, you're in. There ain't no being half in. There ain't no being a piece and a quarter in. Okay, once you're in, you're in, and once you're in. You don't look back. You don't look back because that's where all the demons are. That's where all the bad shit is, is looking back. So in so many words, it was to say, basically, from this point onwards, fuck what anybody thinks. You got to get on with being and discovering who you are. Because at the end of the day, you know the kind of artist and person that you are. And you know that you're not the kind of person only to follow trends and beats and this kind of shit. So you're just going to have to trust that for you, the only way you are going to sail through successfully is to now just turn your back on all of this and just keep going. And so, yeah, he, he, he did convey that, that in person. I got a chance to be close to him be, uh, shortly, a couple years before he died. And um, he, was, he was always quite... Um, supportive. I mean, he, he basically adopted me as one of his, I guess, one of the people that he wanted to leave uh, whatever wisdom he gained with when he could. So um, that was great advice because in any event, what we do is inherently wrapped up in the desire to please people and to move people. So that's a given. But he was right in so much as you're, you're served by it. Once you know what your vision is, once you know what you have to do, you can't turn around and keep asking people's advice and people's opinion. You know, that you cannot lead and ask bunches of questions at the same time. Not, not in that way. I mean, you can ask questions in preparation for getting your knowledge together. But 
you, you can't lead and look behind you. That's impossible. And, and that's, in a nutshell, what that conveyed to me in the context of what we were discussing at that, at that time is that, you know, if you know who you are and you know you're in and once you cross the line, there is no going back, so there, there's no looking back. Wow. Uh, one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life is Miles Davis's autobiography, Miles. And the thing, what he, what, he changed his style like nine times in his career. Well, you know, that's just us to run a number at, you know, according to what we've delineated so far. I'm sure the future there will be some more subtle delineations and they'll realize, no, it was 12, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but the point is that what he was was just the process of an artist continuing to move forward. And naturally, in a, in a stingy commercial age, in a time which encourages stinginess, um, you know, these things are always treated with a bit of resentment because, you know, just when you know where you've set the target and you begin, can begin shooting at it, it moves. You know, and that's what was frustrating uh, about Miles to a certain aspect of the industry that wanted to write his history so that they can basically say, hey, we weren't fully and completely satisfied because this guy kept moving. But, you know, that's, again, the, 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 the understanding that, you know, industry just doesn't have in the nature of who they're engaging as artists in their employ because, you know, People like Miles are simply a force of nature, um, same way in which Master Dylan was. And you know, you just you just weren't going to be able to contain a person like that, according to what the last demographic surveys reveal. You know, these are people that are marching to a different drummer for a reason. And um, you know, industry has always benefited when it's trusted the few freaks that it's had who do march to their own drummers to trust and let them and let them march and just uh, do what they can to capitalize, you know, and help create whatever market can then be created from following bitches who march to their own beat. Wow, you've just put so much gasoline in my tank, you have no idea. If you want to be a leader, you can't be looking back and asking questions. Well, that's the reality. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for you being so generous with your time. I thank you for your music that Thanks. you've uh, brightened my life with. In closing, do you have any words of wisdom or advice that you'd like to give the people of the earth? Um, besides the fact that we have a really cool app that we, uh, that we would like to invite people to um, check out when they have the time to do that, you know, the only thing that I can share is what was shared with me seems like a, a, another lifetime ago and that the, 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 the only meaning of humility that you need to focus on is that humility ultimately means knowing who you are and being that. If you can just know who you are and be that, then everything else looks after itself because in any way you got to train and the track of life is already there. So it's just a matter of getting, or, or it's put another way, it's a matter of taking our boat and just getting it to the water's edge. Once we get it into the water, boom, everything else does take care of itself, the journey does. But it's understood that when you have so many voices vying for your attention because there are so many things to sell and there are so many concepts to get you hooked on, so many competing things for your attention, well, it's understood that you might lose touch with your voice. You might lose touch with who the fuck am I? Who am I? And the most important meditation of our lives is given ultimately to answer this very simple and basic question. 
And then once you figure this out, your journey through the woods proceeds. And it's a wonderful journey because having figured out who you are, everything else looks after itself. Wow. I love it. Uh, is it true with the app, people can be directly in contact with you? I read something like that. No, it's just trying to be as interactive as we can, as any peoples like us exposed to a public can reasonably be. I mean, you know. So, but I, I do really love the fact that you can have a more intimate relationship with people who are on a similar wavelength. That's what's great about this whole divine miracle that is the internet era. You know, good and the bad. Well, and that's one, that's one thing I admire about you the most, the way you took control of, of the new technology, like when the internet started and, and, and being in control of your own musical empire. So, well, it uh, wasn't just for me. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to you know, like be the martyr. It wasn't. I was, part of what was a, allowed me to continue to drive myself towards it was the idea that I, I was aware that I was doing it for more than just myself that there was a generation watching, that there were other artists of my generation and older watching who just needed a new impetus to put themselves back in charge of their own lives and careers because they still have so much to give. And you know that our industry tends to brainwash us and culture into believing after, let's say, 30, 35, 40, we don't have as much to say. And that, of course, our best work is the work that's behind us, meaning the work that they have in control in their catalog. And so the idea that you can go somewhere else and improve and grow they're not really eager to encourage. So that affects a lot of people. That affects a lot of great artists who stop writing songs, you know, or whatever, because they don't feel as empowered as they did once, once upon a time. So what I, uh, what I appreciate about what we've helped to do is help to, to illustrate to artists that they can have back to themselves as much control of their way forward as possible and reinvigorate themselves and reinvest themselves in the situation. Now, in, in conclusion, and it illustrates what I'm saying. One of my all-time heroes is a great Grandmaster Rod Stewart. Um, I idolize him. And he's also one of my favorite songwriters. But at one point, he started writing songs. And apparently, his manager asked him, oh, why did you stop writing songs, Rod? And Rod said, I'm a multimillionaire. What am I going to write about? That my gardener is charging too much? <laughs> Okay, so this also allows guys like Master Rod, a great hero to me, to just say, he's right, fuck it. Let's just put our hands back into this and now take back from companies the idea of who we're supposed to be. Doesn't mean we can't share the spoils with the companies, but let's take back from them that they dictate to us how we're supposed to come across. And let's just let our native strengths and our native connection to the communities we come from be our guide and our way forward. I love it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your music. And uh, long may you run, sir. Long may All you right. run. All right, long man. You, I'll speak to you later. Thank you. Thank your wife and your family and everybody. And, and keep doing it. And we're, we're here for you in spirit. And I, I love what you guys do. I really do. I'm a fan.